It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today, I am sitting down with a lovely man named Josh. I assume he's lovely. We just met, <laughs> but so far, he's really lovely. We have a number of things in common, like the Enneagram uh, work, which referenced a previous episode with a guest whose name has escaped me in this moment, but I'm going to link to it in the show notes, along with anything else that we referenced today. So we started talking about that, Josh, which I really enjoyed because you said you're an Enneagram 8, which yeah. means that you like to get uncomfortable. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, it's funny. The 8 is funny because on one hand, it's a challenger. So you challenge everything, which makes people really uncomfortable. But one of the reasons that you challenge everything is because you don't feel like things are safe unless you've challenged them and they are still there. And so it's a safety mechanism. And what I found, which I get such a kick out of this podcast name, is it says, you know, this might get uncomfortable. And I thought to myself, it's like this story of like my interpersonal relationship life where I'm always having uncomfortable conversations because I need them to feel comfortable. So the irony of that is something. Yeah, I can relate to that, actually. I mean... What strikes me there is that desire to kind of, for me, it's like a control to feel safety. Sure. Like I need a lot of information or I crave it. I, I try to not use the word need. <laughs> I desire a lot of information. I'm a big why person. Mm. That makes me feel safe. Yep. I have kids, uh, uh, two boys, 10 and 12, Cruz and Crosby are their name. And you always remember growing up, why, 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 why? Well, part of that is, as a child, it's that human desire to understand, to frame, to contextualize. But as an adult, a lot of times we have those same feelings of like, why is this? And I need to know this so I can frame, contextualize, feel safe, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, so for me, my greatest comforts come from uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable moments and I've found it to be quite a process that if I can have uncomfortable conversations, I can feel comfortable. <laughs> I love that. I, that's so fascinating. And also the fact that you have so much clarity around that is really interesting. And by the way, I did find out the guest, her name is Jackie Coben. And I'll link to that in the show notes. That was, as I estimated, over two years ago in September, wow. actually September 11th, that episode mm. came out in 2020, where we dug about the Enneagrams. And so I'll include that in the show notes for anyone who's interested in learning more. Josh, I'm curious, how does all of this apply to your work? We're going to talk a lot about business today. Mm. And does this show up in, in the work that you do, whether it's like, the type of work that you're doing or just like how you show up as a person doing the work? Well, so there's two ways to kind of navigate that question. One is how does an eight, my eight show up? And then maybe two is how does Enneagram show up? And so I believe very much in the power of EQ. And I actually wrote the guidebook. It's called Beyond Allies, Advancing Women in the Workplace. 
And it's a guidebook that is used by what's called Next Up, which is the largest network of executive women. And they use it where Coke uses it, Pepsi uses it, Intel uses it, Ikea, a bunch of brands use this thing I wrote. But I built it all around looking at diversity through the lens of emotional intelligence. And there's the IQ that we understand. It's very functional. Then there's the EQ, which is very relational. And I think in today's modern business, today's modern relationships, having a high EQ is just so, so important. But part of that is not only self-awareness, which is how I use the Enneagram 8 for me to help me be self-aware. Josh, when you feel threatened or unsafe, you're naturally going to be overly aggressive. Some people shrink down. Some people masquerade. People do all sorts of different things when they feel threatened. I'm aggressive because I'm going to go attack that. I'm going to go push in that. I'm going to go fight that. But that's not always helpful, especially not when you're the CEO of a company and you have a lot of people that are, the title alone makes them feel a certain way. And then you feel threatened and you're aggressive and it makes them feel way more uncomfortable to be transparent. And so part of the way it shows up for me is self-awareness and going, Josh, like you can't, even though that's your default setting, it's not always helpful for those that are laddering up and working with you. I love the way that you phrase that. And I think that is incredibly valuable. As I said, we're going to take up a lot of a business focus in this episode because of the work that you're doing. And I was really drawn to it because of that allyship. That's a term that I'm really working on and prioritizing in my life. And the fact that you prioritize inclusivity in the workplace and as a a man, part of that is the gender equality, you know, which is surprising to me (laughs) that so much of my life I've noticed the gender inequality. When I used to work in the film industry, that was a huge issue. When I was in film school, I remember like seeing the small percentages of women that had these big roles in the film industry and wondering why that was. And I guess I had this innocence like, oh, that's got to be a temporary thing. But it's still occurring. We see disparity in terms of pay and men making more money than women. We also see racial issues, marginalized communities really struggling to feel that equality and inclusivity. And I'm curious, what is it that made that such a big part of your work and interest of yours, Josh? In full transparency, it wasn't anything I was seeking. But so I'll say that first off, I have several different businesses I run. One's called Wisdom Capture. And it's a film agency where we go in and tell stories and brands. And one of the contracts that we landed through a friend was the network of executive women or next up. And we went and filmed all their executive team. We kind of hit it off. They asked us to do more work with them. The CEO and I became friends, this wonderful woman named Sarah Alter. And she asked me one day, why do you think more men aren't involved? And I shared with her, I don't think you're reaching men. I think your network and the way your education is pointed is pointed towards women or it's pointed towards people that are marginalized. It's not pointed towards privileged people. And so the education is going to everybody that is, as they say, singing to the choir. And it's not. And so she's like, well, what do you think we should do? And I was like, well, what if we wrote a curriculum? And what if a privileged white male did it? I kind of built it in that way. So we thought it was an interesting experiment. And so I ended up writing out the content 
and it kind of took off and it worked really well. And then through writing the content, it was like, it raised my awareness. That wasn't something I was paying attention to. I mean, I grew up in Colorado, all boys. I'm comfortable around kind of the, that world. It was super educational for me, super instrumental for me. But I say that to say, you know, so often in life, so often for me, everything is unplanned. The current business I'm in right now, Juno, we were in the middle of the very beginning of COVID. And a lot of our clients that was my company crowd up was like, hey, can you build virtual technology? Next thing you know, we're building virtual technology, raising tens of millions of dollars, hiring people from all over the country in weeks. And everything in life, you know, you just keep going forward. And when the opportunity presents itself, you engage it, you learn from it, you grow from it. And so for me, it was unplanned. But then once I got into it, I understood the power of inclusivity and not just gender or race. I mean, that's awesome and it's important work, but even more expansively, like people getting to know people, getting to understand how they view the world differently than you do. And the things we can learn from one another is absolutely fascinating. I couldn't agree more. It's incredibly fascinating. And you mentioned Juno, which is also quite fascinating to me. I was looking at your LinkedIn and there's a a few things I wanted to touch upon. But before I get to that with the Juno side of it, it starts off in your description saying 10 years of building great communities. The teams behind Juno have built digital communities and captured the stories that make brands great. I'm curious, what does community mean to you in the Juno term? It's hard to explain community without using all the buzzwords and everything else, but something that I've always been fascinated with is human connection. And I find that every single person I've ever met, no matter how different we were, there was things we had in common. There just is. And you've probably heard people say this before, but it's amazing how much we focus on what we don't have in common versus focusing on what we do have in common. And one of the things that I love about community is for a community to happen, it means one or more person, I guess two or more people, have decided we're going to find something in common. And look, in today's world, I mean, from politics to policy to personalities, so many things are different. Even in my own family, I mean, every single one of us view policy and politicians and finances differently. So the sheer volume of things we don't have in common is limitless. But there are things we do have in common. And to me, community happens when we find the things we do have in common and say, hey, we can spend the next hour focused on what we don't have in common and fight and disagree, which there's time and place for healthy discussion. Or we can find what we do have in common and enjoy community. You do a really great job at that, Josh. I noticed that right from the get-go. You know, even as I said, like you and I sat down, we we had a short turnaround time for getting warmed up before we started recording. And you found points right away that you had in common with me. And that makes it so much easier to connect and to lean into people and have rich conversations like this. I mean, one thing about me is I can't stand small talk. <laughs> You know, for me, this show is like the opposite of small talk. I don't want to sit on here and and talk for an hour about what the weather is like. I want to come on here and get deep and get uncomfortable. And your willingness to get uncomfortable also says a lot about your willingness to connect. Well, and I think that that's, you know, it's funny. I immediately, when I start to talk to somebody, can connect some dots on what we're not going to have in common 
And then the next one is, what's the tolerance for that? Because if we don't have things in common, but you really enjoy discussion and a word that I talk a lot about from, I've lived 10 lifetimes, but one of them, a word I talk a lot about is grace and saying, hey, like that's a powerful word that when we actually say, I can give somebody grace to think differently than me. I can give somebody grace to share their point of view. I don't have to convince everybody to think like me. And I think benefit of the doubt, grace, you know, whatever word you want, phrases you want to use. But when people are like, hey, I fundamentally view the world differently than you, but I sincerely want to understand the way you view the world, really interesting conversation can happen. It's when we fundamentally disagree and we are fundamentally not interested in hearing what somebody else might have to say, where community breaks down. That's such a great point. And that's a lot to digest right there. (laughs) I mean, even the word grace doesn't come up that much in conversation. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I want to ask you an uncomfortable question since you mentioned it. Did you notice anything with me that you knew we weren't going to... Well, how did you phrase it? Like a difference between us. Like since you noticed these things about people right away, I'm curious in full transparency, like what comes up? You always start by just assigning, right? Which is always dangerous, but you everybody does it because you don't have anything else to go with. And so you're trying to formulate your own, what is this person? What is not this person? I grew up a child in the 80s in Colorado. So I was in a very conservative family, conservative politically, conservative religious. So this was my world that I grew up in. And through my travels and the things that I've done, my worldviews expanded, but I'm traditional in things like policy. I'm old school in things like work. I am a driver and these type things. My wife and I were in Nashville for business. Well, I was on business. She was with me and we were we were joking that the waitress came over and she was like, so what allergies do we need to be aware of? And just assuming, and I said back to her, I don't have any. I was born in the 80s. And we all kind of started laughing saying, you know, I'm not an emerging person where kind of the jokes, right? Everybody's got allergies. Everybody's got these things. I'm a little old school in that. So I was, my first thought was, okay, LA film, you know, production industry, probably more like millennial mindset than maybe this this guy who's now in his 40s is. And whether those things are true or not, even when you were like, I'm giving myself permission to not assign a purpose for this. And it kind of just feels like that little bit of that, you know, like emerging person. Like I was telling a story the other day, one of our employees came in and that works for me and was telling me about a company they were starting. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, what a crazy world we live in. I'm your boss of a company I own. And you're coming in telling me about this new company you're starting and I'm supposed to be happy for you because if I'm not happy for you, then I don't support you. And if I don't support you, then who's this boss that doesn't support me start another company while you're on my dime? So I don't know. I mean, I kind of maybe first thought like when you said some of those things, like maybe we have a different point of view in terms of work and balance and outcomes. Uh, Maybe we have a difference in even things like inclusion. Like I look at inclusion through a lens, but then I also have boundaries around that. As a father of two boys, that I'm guarded on when we get to have certain conversations about certain things. And sexuality is one of them. I don't want commercials to educate my kids on sexuality before we have the times to talk about those type things. A lot of other people don't feel that way. They're like, hey, 
The school should be educating kids on sexuality at their own choice. So there's some things right there that you could bundle all this up and go, there's a lot right there that we could see the world differently on as a 42-year-old white male from Colorado who runs multiple companies with two boys, 10 and 12, who grew up socially conservative, but then's world expanded into some of the most non-conservative, liberal, forward-facing places. And I would I was joking during the elections, if you scroll through my Instagram, you'd be like, this guy's like schizophrenic. Because so much of my community is on either side of policy, either side of religion. And what's made me able to have friends across all the different sectors is a sincere desire to understand what people say. How's that for trying to be as transparent, as honest as I can be? I mean, you nailed it. it. Behind the scenes, I was laughing hysterically at some of the things that you were saying. Most not laughing at them, but just laughing like, because I was enjoying hearing you. I mean, just the way that you speak, I find incredibly pleasant. And what I found really interesting is that there were a number of things that we actually have in common and how we will have uh, perceptions of people, right? And just like you were saying earlier, like the things that we have in common versus the things that are different about us. First of all, I love Colorado, but as you're speaking, I started to think, wow, your experience of Colorado sounds different from mine. And then I started to feel really curious about what that's like. I've only visited, but it's one of my favorite states to visit. And so I have this viewpoint that's come from my lens as someone who grew up in Massachusetts, very liberal, and then moved to Los Angeles, very liberal, lived a little in San Francisco. Like, that's another thing, like the political side of stuff and the liberal versus conservative and all those viewpoints and the bubbles that we can get ourselves into from that standpoint. And then I was really laughing at the allergy thing because you don't know me very well yet, Josh, but I have so many food sensitivities. And I'm like, wow, like, it's funny, the age thing, like, I'm a millennial, yes. And is it a millennial generational thing of being aware of what you eat and how it impacts your body and like being sensitive to food? Well, and that's the thing, right? It's like, I watch people all the time that are derogatory towards generations or they're derogatory towards differences. And I kind of look at it and go, who cares? It's none of my deal. Like, oh, people don't have food sensitivities. Maybe they do. Who cares? People don't. Maybe they don't. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, and I think that's the thing about in today's society, especially like the individuality that we get to carry whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's religious beliefs, the hard part is it's hard to ever find that, that line of like, well, and maybe here's a question. I always, since we're podcasts, I always find this interesting. I was talking to somebody about this. Oh, I was with a buddy of mine. Here's another great example. I'm with a buddy. So I grew up Christian. This guy is Palestinian Muslim. He's a partner at KPMG. Our kids play on a club soccer team together. We are watching the U.S. soccer tournament. And he's like, you know, do you know why all the Arab countries are upset at this year's World Cup? And I was like, no. And he goes, well, FIFA is making a big deal about wearing the LBG2K patch arm. And he's like, they didn't make a big deal about it in China. They didn't make a big deal about it in Russia. And now that it's in a Muslim country, now they're making a big deal about it because Muslims have a ban on gay rights and the ability to be gay. And so we're talking about all this. And at first of all, I found that fascinating. I'm like, wow, this is such a mind bend where like, here is a Muslim man upset, not about 
the gay rights issue, but about the fact that FIFA's making it a big deal and they didn't in other countries, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I say to Muslim, isn't it interesting? Like, you answered me this, I'm curious your thought on this. So for me, I'm like, hey, if you want to believe that in gender fluidity or you want to believe in whatever you want to believe in, I honestly am like, cool, like whatever. But also, what if somebody's like, I believe that there is no homosexuality. I believe that's a choice, or I, I don't believe that in gender fluidity. Because you can that's a whole thing generationally, right? And so is it okay for them to think that or believe that? And is it okay? So I'm always like, why is it not okay for somebody to think this, but it is okay for somebody to think that? And where does that break down? Like, how does that process actually function where if I say to you, hey, I'm super cool with however you view sexuality or whatever it might be, and somebody else says, why don't I view it this way? Where does it break down? And that's, you want to talk about being uncomfortable as a CEO when you're sitting there with all these different people. And I can tell you right now on my team, there's people that are like, I believe this about politics or sexuality or policy. And there's other people who are like, I believe this. And at some point in time, both of them will say, it's not okay for you to think that. And you go, you know what I'm saying? Like, where does that, who decides? And like, how do we figure that part out? How's that? There you go. I love that question because I think about this all the time. I feel so confused by it. I think this came up on the show recently and I'm not 100% sure because sometimes there's like a blur between things I talk about with guests on the show and things I do outside of the show. But I feel like it was a recent guest and it's this idea around, or maybe it was in therapy. Let me see. <laughs> I might have talked about this with my therapist recently expressing how I often struggle with this, where there seems to be the fluidity in just our ideas and our belief systems and the gray areas. I tend to be a very gray area person. Speaking of safety, as we spoke about at the beginning, I feel safer in the gray because the black and white feels too rigid and confusing to me. Meaning like, is there a right and a wrong? Or is there never a right and a wrong? Is it just that we're all on some spectrum of different beliefs and life experiences? As you mentioned, all the factors, when we're talking about inclusivity and all the different types of people out there, right? Not only are there different types of people from gender and race and where they grew up and sexuality and religion, politics, all these things that make us unique, and all the different combinations of those things. But then each of those individuals has a different family background. (laughs) And there's trauma that comes into it and the impact of trauma that has on our childhood development if it happens at a young age. And the trauma that we go through as a society with all these global events going on. I mean, like, there's just constant shifts happening that basically make it so every single person in this world is looking at life through a different lens. And that to me is simultaneously beautiful and wildly confusing because it's like, how do you communicate with anybody if we're all vastly different? Well, and that's where I, I think that there's grace comes back in. You know, there's that word again where it's like, hey, it starts with, man, I can't tell you that the people that I spend time with that we view the world so differently. But again, so there's grace for that. And it's like, I think it is important to not live in a world where it's like, you have to believe what I believe. I think things get very challenging when that happens. I think that there's, but to be interested 
and what somebody else is passionate about. Like my buddy who's Muslim, we we're hanging out. He was giving me this huge lesson on Palestine versus Israel through the years and the, the effect of it. And I'd heard a lot of this story through some of my the lens of some of my Israeli or Jewish friends, but I'd never heard the Israeli-Palestine conflict through the eyes and lens of a Palestinian man. And so to hear that, I was like, wow, so fascinating to ask questions and to listen. And I think that's the other thing, like part of connections is not to arrive at conclusions, but it's to ask questions, you know, and say, hey, over the next 30, 45 minutes, my friend's name's Ahmed. When we're sitting here, I'm not attempting to draw a conclusion as much as I'm trying to ask questions and be a learner. And that's good enough. It's good enough to be educated. It's good enough to have more information versus like, well, now that you're done talking, I'm going to arrive at a conclusion. You're right. You're wrong. You're this. You're that. I don't know that I need to arrive at a conclusion here. You know, I need to engage in questions. And so I think that's a big difference too, is I think everybody thinks that they've got to have a conclusion on everything. And maybe you don't need a conclusion on everything. Maybe you need more information and just, and you need to be supportive and be a listener. Yes, <laughs> that is so well said. And I imagine that is a helpful mentality to have as a CEO, like you're describing, because especially if you're working with creative types, which it sounds like you do, there's a lot of creative people and you're also very community focused, which lends itself to diversity in general, all these diverse perspectives, different types of people that form community amongst all the things you have in common. And it sounds like understanding this can help you navigate that role as CEO. Do you find that to be true? Yeah. I mean, I think at its core, what people really want is to be heard. And it's not, I think we think they want to be agreed with. And I found so often in what I'll finish a conversation with somebody and go, let me tell you what I hear you say. And then they go, that's what I said and go, awesome. I heard it. And you think they're going to, and, and you're like, you know, they don't do that very often. You know, more often than not, it's like, thank you. And you're like, you're welcome. And you might say to them, I'll keep that in mind, but let me make sure that I heard you. I was just on a meeting last week and, and one of our teammates brought up four or five things that they wanted to see changed on our website. And our sales team was on there, our marketing team was on there, and our product team was on there. And they all were trying to argue about the way a, a sentence was said. And ultimately, I was like, hey, let's all, this seems like a big deal to everybody. Let's get on. I'll hear it out. And I'm going to make the decision. But one thing I did each time was like, let me hear what I, let me make sure I hear what you're saying. And I think that at its core, people want to be heard. And that's such a foreign thing anymore that some of the biggest blessings we can give people is just let them be heard. I mean, you sound like a wonderful person to work for. <laughs> I love the way. I wish more people in my background, when I was working a more traditional job, now I work as the consulting freelance environments. And certainly I do have clients and there can be communication breakdowns with them too. It actually is incredibly common. And sometimes I'm yearning for someone to be a little bit more aware of how to handle this. I found this so much in various roles I've had where I've had a manager. Right now, it's rare for me to be managed by someone. I'm usually managing a team or something and in the marketing work that I do. But when I was working retail, for example, many years ago, there was such a huge difference between the manager who had 
the knowledge and, and training that you're describing, like this ability to work through conflict and tension and to understand someone, to hear them, to reflect that back. I mean, a lot of it's like a parallel, as I mentioned, like therapy. You see therapists doing this. You see as a coach in the other work that I do in the well-being side of things, you know, I was trained to do exactly what you're describing. A lot of times people do just want to be heard. And sometimes you're literally reflecting back what they're saying which gives you both clarity on that and helps you move forward. And what I've seen a lot of managers and bosses, CEOs do poorly in my work history was kind of taking this stance of I'm right and you have to listen to me, almost like parental. (laughs) Some parents do this too. Mine certainly did. It's like, I'm the authority figure. You have to listen to me. And as a kid, that didn't work with me and my parents. (laughs) That actually made things worse. Yeah, I mean, I think so many managers and leaders see success as being right or being the boss. And really, success as a leader is about the evolution of other people. And when you don't have a vision bigger than your current role, then you're always going to try to keep everybody under you. And when you have a vision for something bigger than you are, and then you're like, I need you to get above me. Because the, the higher you rise, the higher I rise. And I have a bigger vision. And I think for me, like in leadership, especially when you own businesses, you're like, hey, listen, my number one goal is to have a successful business. It's not to be the CEO. Yeah, I am the CEO. So, I mean, I don't, like now the goal is not about wielding power. It's about success. And so I think, People just need to, you know, it's always like, what's my role here? And I think people too lack the social skills to know how to ask the questions, to know how to disagree. And that's really, man, if that's probably a great course out there is just how to disagree with people because we're going to disagree with each other more and more and more in the coming years as for all the reasons you and I just talked about. I mean, look at the thing we already have viewed very differently I'm making fun of food allergies like they don't exist. You have a lots of food sensitivities. We have this massive thing that could literally create tension with people, anger with people. You don't, you know, where I go, I believe you. And you can believe me that I don't. And you could say, yeah, but Josh, you don't know your body well enough. You have a lot of sensitivities, but you don't know your body. And I'd go, but do you have the social EQ? Is that worthwhile or not? Or... Could we laugh about the differences and find something that we could share in common? We can laugh about our differences. We can connect on our the things we have in similar. And I think that's a great thing too, is like, we always joke on my kids' travel soccer team, all the dads are all executives at different companies and all big personalities. And we always say, you have to have a great sense of humor and thick skin to be with this group. And I think that's a great rule of thumb for relational success in life. Be able to laugh at yourself, have some thick skin, you know, relax a little bit, enjoy the ride. And I think you're going to have a lot more joy in life. That's great advice. And on that note, here's another loaded question for you that maybe you don't have an opinion on, but I'm I'm curious to see if you've given this much thought because it seems to be coming up a lot recently. We're recording this episode the beginning of December 2022. And in the past month or so, there's been a lot of online discourse around how Elon Musk operates as a leader. 
Do you have anything that you want to share? Because some of the things that you were talking about in terms of leadership have been part of this conversation about how Elon Musk took over Twitter. You know, it's funny. I just shared a very interesting thing that he, and a big HR blog shared about a memo that he sent out to Twitter on how to run meetings. And it was awesome. So this is my opinion on Elon Musk. There's no doubt that he's hyper successful. In fact, I just saw on LinkedIn today, there's a new chat bot out that's like taking the internet by storm. And it's like one of the fastest growing things. And it's like Elon Musk owns it. And you're like, what in the world? This guy's like everywhere. I think Elon Musk is an old school leader. I think he's passionate and mission driven, whether you agree with the mission or not. We have to remember that just because we don't agree with the mission doesn't mean he's not mission driven. I've often said to people, can you imagine if your vision for success while you had your time on earth, so you would define, you would just say, hey, I was successful with my life on earth if, and then everybody fills in the blank, right? Like some people are like, if I'm a great dad, some people are like, if I make a million dollars, some people are like, if I have a country club membership, some people are like, if I have a second home, we all have these like kind of aspirations about what success looks like. His is to occupy Mars. You think about that bar. Think about the, the success bar. When you're like, I failed as a human because we didn't occupy Mars. And you're like, so I say, I'm, I'm answering the question in a couple of layers. Number one, I think his vision for success is really high. I don't think he cares about people in the sense of like their feelings. I think he cares about the human race living on because he talks a lot about it. So I think he has like a macro view of people, of like a species, like a scientific species. I don't think he has a micro view of human being as people's souls. And I think that's where you see like he's got this wild ambition And you think, oh my gosh, this guy like really cares about the human race. And he does. At the macro level, this dude cares about the human race. At the micro level, this guy does not care about individual people. And I think that what that's what makes this guy interesting. So what do I think about Elon Musk? I mean, I think I can't even fathom an ambition like occupying Mars. I think his risk tolerance is through the roof and it's something to be admired and not necessarily replicated because I don't think very many people have the stomach to do what the guy's done. He won a a billion dollar contract with NASA or with the government and he beat out Boeing because Boeing basically presented a offer to NASA and said, here's all the reasons why you should invest a billion dollars with us and why we won't blow up rockets and we'll do it perfect. And Elon Musk came in and said, here's why you should give me a billion dollars. This is how many rockets I'll be able to blow up in the first year. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Like traditional minds said, look how we'll protect your investment. He went in and said, look how I'll destroy it so that we can, what? And he was the first one to send a rocket up on earth and land it right back on its, you know, I mean, he's a fascinated human. I just don't think he cares about micro people. I don't even know that he has the capacity to with the way that he's such a, interesting human. Do I think he has good leadership styles? No. Do I think he's always been able to attract some of the most brilliant mission people? You know, I mean, people that were on a mission to lower greenhouse footprints and everything else, look what he did. People that are on a mission to send rockets and look what he did. I mean, the guy's fascinating. I just don't think he cares about people. (laughs) 
That's such an insightful perspective. I mean, I am deeply fascinated by Elon Musk more and more so. It's just been growing and growing and he feels so mysterious. And yet I keep finding myself thinking, wow, like why don't I see him negatively? Like it just seems like some people can't stand him. They think he's awful. They think all of these negative things come out. And I'm wondering like, why do I just see him as a complex human being that's ultimately doing a lot of really great things, you know? Like, I feel open. (laughs) It's like I'm trying to convince myself to not like him because I don't like the way he treats people. Some of these leadership styles and there's a lot of cultural issues. And I'm not only a Tesla owner, but a Tesla stockholder. So I'm literally invested in that company and him managing it well. I'm, I'm... sad about what's happening over at Twitter and kind of hoping that Twitter pulls through because I think it's such a cool platform and and has so much nostalgia for people like me. But at the same time, part of me is like, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if he just completely destroyed Twitter? Like what would come out of that? Even though there are people's lives and livelihoods that are very attached to that platform, I feel bad for them as individual But part of me is looking at it like you're saying, like, what if he's trying to blow things up in a way because it has a macro perspective? Because he's looking at things in the long term and willing to risk it all in a way that other people aren't. And they can't even relate to that like you're sharing. Because how can you relate to somebody who's willing to burn everything to the ground to have it rebuilt in a better way? I think maybe that's why he's so polarizing. Whether we like it or not, People have to find common ground and you have to be able to be on a public square, which is what he keeps referring it to as, and you've got to be able to stomach and tolerate indifference. And I think we live in a society right now, and there's a lot of good things that have come out of our intolerance. There is, there's a lot of good things that have come out of it. And there's a lot of non-sustainable things. You can't just force people to not have an opinion that's different than yours. You can't force people to just stop what they believe and that what they feel. What you can do is educate people on conversations and grace. And I think what he's, in a lot of ways, and I haven't given this a lot of thought, but I think in a lot of ways what he said is Twitter has to be a place for everyone to disagree. And if somebody gets booted for, or it gets marginalized, or it's designed in a way to protect one side or the other, you don't actually have progress in, as a human race, being sustainable. I'm sure if you got on Truth Social or whatever that thing's called, that's that's Donald Trump's thing, I'm sure you're not going to get a balanced conversation. And I think the theory with Elon Musk is how do we create a balanced environment Which means sometimes you're going to see stuff that just makes you want to throw your phone across the room, but that also you have to work that muscle and saying, hey, I'm not letting that statement or that thing wreck my day. And that's why I think it is part of sustaining some stuff. I don't know. I think you're onto something with that. There's so much to explore with you, Josh. I just really value the way that you think these things through and how much you're willing to lean into that discomfort of disagreement. And since we're getting 
close to the end of our time together, there's one last thing I would love to hear about, which, as I mentioned earlier, is related to your LinkedIn because I found this really interesting. And pause me if this didn't come from you because as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, is this coming from... Did you write this or did this come from the company or both? Because it starts off in your about section of LinkedIn talking about we are a people who have signed up to undertake projects. And what I found this interesting is talk. you're talking about your values and behaviors and all of them start with the letter E. Did you write this or is this a company? I, I did write those. No, those I, are... I, I want to hear those. about this because you have expect greatness energy, effort, engaged excellence, earn everything and end well. Why did they all start with E and where did these values and behaviors come from? Yeah, so I'm a sucker for things rhyming, making sense, alliterations. Part of it is I found out later in life because of my son that I'm dyslexic. And I didn't know that until we found out he was. So my brain learns and retains better when I can frame, when I can put that together. But I wanted to write values of people that I wanted to work with. And what were those values of people that I just was like, man, I that's who I want to work with. And it was things like earn everything. And there's statements underneath each one of them. And one of them is we don't ask for handouts, but we take hand ups. And I'm a huge believer of that. Like I believe in hand ups and a lot of people don't, but I don't believe in handouts. And a lot of people do. But I want you to earn it because when you earn it, you care for it better and you take care of it better. And so that's a big one for me. And so energy, like, oh my gosh, I work all day long. When I'm in a meeting with somebody, I want to feel the energy. I want them to inspire me. I want them to push me. I want them to expect great things are going to happen each day. So all these different things that we end up putting together, these are the seven values. We call them the seven E's and it's our seven E values and culture that we just live by and believe by. And to clarify, who's we? So it started with Juno, which is one of my companies, but it started even before then. I put this together for my kind of portfolio of companies that I run. And I've got several different companies. And I just kind of instituted this in of like, hey, when you come work with anything that Josh leads, this is what we're looking for. And so I want you to be people that are like, man, I want to work hard. I want to earn this. I want to end well. I want to don't start a project and then fumble it at the end because you didn't want to put the energy in, like end well. So yeah, those are all the different things we do. That's really neat. Well, speaking of ending well, I'm going to read that statement and hopefully we will end well with this episode. So your statement is, we don't believe in excuses. We don't accept blame shifting. We mess things up. We never stay silent. We fearlessly and courageously own our shit. We dot I's and cross T's. We see every single day as a chance to end well. We never put off tomorrow what we can finish today. I love it. It's just it. I mean, that's the kind of boys I want to raise. That's the kind of company I want to lead. It's the kind of people I want to be around. I can't stand when people mess up and they don't own it and they point fingers and you're like, just own it, whatever. Like you messed up, you know, like big deal. Have the courage and integrity to own your stuff. And yeah, I love the 70s. I love leading out of them. Our team loves being around them. And it just, yeah, it's, it's definitely our cultural glue. That's very cool. And and the letter E's show up in the description of your podcast, which is in progress. That's how I discovered you. It's called Building Inclusive Digital Communities. And in that, it says it's for the podcast is to help leading organization, nonprofit, or for profit brands by emphasizing human connection and engagement with digital 
community. So the E's are still showing up in that description. I'm curious, where are you at with the podcast? Like, when does it come out? How are you feeling about it? Like, where are you in that process? Yeah, it's been a great experience. I've not done podcasting. I've done a lot of communicating. I've done TEDx. I'm actually a global ambassador for the U.S. State Department on entrepreneurship. So speaking has always been a huge part of my life. This was new and our marketing team's running it. I don't even know. I thought it was live. Is it not live yet? I'll have to go double check. I The last I saw, it wasn't, but maybe it's come out since I last checked. I, I thought it was, but this is one of the good and bad as you get like a little bit further along. Oh, wait, it is. Okay, here we go. It came yeah. out in October. So a few months ago. So the first episode is building inclusive teams in a virtual world. And you have guests on there. And I put you on the spot here, Josh. I didn't mean to. But (laughs) it's really not you have nine episodes out already. And you have a co-host on the show. Megan is our director of engagement. She's awesome. And so she does a lot of them. I do some of them. And it's just great conversations on how do we be inclusive online. How do we be inclusive in community and the importance of just, again, like we talked about today, you don't have to draw a conclusion, ask questions, give grace. We're all just trying to figure this thing out. Nobody's got it figured out. So be grace driven. And I think those are important qualities. I think so too. That's exactly what drew me to have you on the show. You're a phenomenal speaker, Josh. It's no surprise that you've been doing this professionally for a long time. And how awesome to have, you know, so many projects going on, so many companies you're running, have have all this team support behind doing the podcast. That's just so great. And I wish you nothing but the best with it because obviously I'm a big believer in podcasting and love seeing different perspectives and voices getting out there. That's the beauty of the show. So thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with me and the listener today. For those that are eager to learn more, I'm going to link to Josh and his podcast, all of his work in the show notes for this episode, which are at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can also look right below in your podcast player or if you're watching on YouTube, wherever you are, look in the description and there are links right there to make it super easy for you to learn more. Josh, you had so many great quotes that I've highlighted in the show notes for anyone who wants to go back and reread them, copy and paste, share them perhaps. You've got a lot of quotable moments, Josh. Again, (laughs) your speaker training has really shined its light here today and just grateful for the time that you took out of everything you got going on to be here. Pleasure was mine. You are a phenomenal host. You're very easy to talk to. You've got a great sense of humor. And I think it's imperative in in today's world that we walk with that. So thank you for having me. Truly, the pleasure was mine. And I can't wait to see where it all goes. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.